Before we read scripture, I thought I would spend a couple of minutes just sharing a little glimpse of my story so that you're not listening to an absolute stranger here this morning. Uh, I was born actually in Seoul, South Korea and immigrated when I was six years old. My parents and I, we ran a grocery store in what is now called, I think, Nob Loin, uh, where uh, on Pine Street, uh, not that far away, and it was called Royal Pine Market, doesn't exist anymore, but it's the first Korean-American grocery store in San Francisco. Uh, a lot of history, and I um, uh, went to Lowell High School, as Dave said, and my wife and I, we've been married now for 23 years. My wife is a marriage and family therapist. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> it means she wins every argument in our home. Wait, why are you laughing? That's not funny. Uh, this is a true story. Uh, therapists have a very important book as well. It's not as important as the Bible is for us as believers, but they have a very important book as well. And it's a, a book called the DSM. It's a Diagnosis Statistics Manual. It's a humongous, robust, intimidating book. And I find it very unfair that when my wife and I get into a discussion, which is a pastoral word for a fight, um, she just brings out her DSM book like this. <laughs> now she'll open it in the middle of my point, and then she'll say, uh, hold on for a second. Um, oh, it says here that um, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and she wins again. Um, my wife and I, we have three children. We have two kids in college. And then our youngest is a junior in high school. Praise God for Asian jeans. Asian jeans, anyone? Asian jeans? Um, and I thought uh, I would just share a, a little bit of some photos to share our story with you. Uh, the first photo, uh, actually, can we go back to the first one, the grid photo? This is when my wife and I first met. Uh, uh, tr true story, uh, Beauty and the Beast. And... Uh, <laughs> When I went to Korea looking like this, true story, my future mother-in-law looked at me and she said, Eugene, if you want to marry my daughter, go instantly cut your hair and shave. I was so offended. So I looked at her and I said, yes. <laughs> so I did and thus produced our wedding photos and our traditional Korean wedding photos, like a nice Korean drama. If you've never watched it, don't start. <laughs> don't start. And then, uh, so we have married, we've got three kids, so that's our next photo here. Um, here we are, our three kids. And then my wife and I, uh, we were also starring in a film recently, and it's this film right here. Next one, there it is. I don't know if you guys can see it, but uh, uh, that's been really the motto of our life, is how do we be faithful in our discipleship, in our pursuit of Jesus? Uh, one last thing that I'll just share, we'll read scripture, is um, uh, I've been crying all morning. I've been so emotional because uh, this is really, really special and a privilege for me to be back in San Francisco. Uh, I left after high school. Uh, I was back here in San Francisco last month for my 30-year high school reunion. And it was the first time I ever stepped back in high school. And I think part of the reason why is I really struggled with my past. 
uh, there were aspects of shame that I've been holding on to in some way or the other. Even last night, I'm having dinner with a couple of my high school friends, and I guess my memory has been so foggy, one of them said, you were really a hothead. You got into fights constantly. And in my mind, I'm like, really? Like, yes. And I remembered, oh my goodness, I got into fights. I got into a fight during my graduation rehearsal, got expelled at that time. I had to have my mother come back to beg them to let me walk and so forth. And, and so the privilege to come back here and then to be able to witness uh, what God's doing in San Francisco, which has been a city very dear to my heart has been very, very emotional and a gift to me. So thank you for the privilege of teaching God's word today. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Listen now for God's word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Father, thank you again so much for the privilege that it is to gather together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, for your presence and your power. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, Amen. Friends, let me give you a roadmap of how we'll spend the next 35 or so minutes. I want to first take a few minutes to kind of break down the importance of this particular passage. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive in this passage, but we'll do a big picture view of why this particular passage matters. And then I want to give you four major points that we can learn as you guys are doing this community remix. I want to share with you four big principles that you can learn as individuals and as a church. And in one of those points, I actually want to go in pretty deep and use an analogy of a potluck with a church and how you and I might fit in that analogy of a potluck. This happens to be one of my favorite passages in the scripture. Now there's many, but I love this because it gives us a very beautiful, biblical, faithful, mesmerizing, compelling image of the church. The church isn't about size per se, it's not about buildings, it's not about styles, but in this particular description, it gives us the essential tenets of what it means to be the people of God, to be the church, to be a community. Now what's interesting is that sometimes in our modern lens, we'll look at this passage and we'll say, why can't the church be like this? Now, obviously, our response should be amen 
and amen. We agree to this, but here's the tension. The tension isn't, can we be a church like this? The tension is, can we be a church like this after we've experienced everything else after Acts 2? So when you read Acts 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, when you read the entirety of the book of Acts, you see what? That there's beautiful things, but there's conflict, there's tension, there's betrayal, there's fights, there's theological discussions and arguments and sides, and the list goes on. And my question to you is not can we be this in an isolated perspective, but in the midst of the messiness of life and church and community, can we still pursue after this? That's the question. So I love this description of the first church. It reminds us of their devotion to teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And it's not just a listing of these things. We're told here in Acts that they were devoted to these things. It's not just a matter that they did it, but they were passionate, committed, intentional about these things. I want you to realize that church is not passive. Community is not passive. Discipleship is not passive. Intentionality, pursuing after God is not a passive endeavor. You have to be devoted to these things. And the early church, they cared. They were intentional. They were passionate about these things. I think it might be helpful for the sake of our sermon today to give us a working definition of a church. Now, I'm sure that in your church, there are ways to describe what a church is. I thought I would give you a working definition of how we perceive church in our local church in Seattle. And it goes like this. The church is a family of imperfect women and men, young and old, of all backgrounds, ethnicities and stories who gather together by the grace of Christ to worship Jesus and depend on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to be on mission together for the glory of God. That's the church. That's the church. So I love that as we're speaking about a community remix, the focus is not on us but the focus is on God and his word. Now, another reason why I love this passage is that as you study it, there's so many aspects to it, but it also focuses on the importance of food. <laughs> now, it's not meant to be a comical thing. When you actually read the scriptures in its totality, you realize that food has a very important aspect in God's creation. That God creates food for our enjoyment and food has the capacity to bring people together around the common table. So for example, in the Old Testament, you have stories of God feeding the Israelites, proving again that he is the God of provision to his people through the desert. We know that Jesus loves throwing parties. He loves feeding us. He changes water into wine at the wedding feast. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, invites himself to Levi's house. Jesus feeds 
the miracle of the 5,000 in which only counted men, if you were to include women and children, scholars say over 10,000 people were fed. My favorite story in John 21 where Jesus feeds breakfast to the disciples after, again, another episode of them having uncertainty and doubt. How about Jesus feeding the disciples and washing their feet, including a man that he knew was going to betray him? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person. See, in the Bible, when you ate with someone, it wasn't just like, hey, you want to do lunch? There was something so deeply theological and significant. When you ate with someone, what you were saying is, I choose to be an intentional friendship for life with you. See, this is the reason why food has such a central theme throughout scriptures. So I want you to keep that in mind as we're talking about food. So what's the four major themes that I love for you to ponder and consider, especially as you're in the series on Community Remix. Here's number one. If you're writing down notes or if you have a good memory, here's number one. Jesus is our great host. Jesus is our great host. In other words, I don't want to pop anyone's bubbles. It's not us. It's not you. It's not me. It's not some charismatic leader. It's not great preachers. Remember these words from the theologian Martin Luther who said, we are all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. So as to say that we're not the great host, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. We acknowledge that there are leaders and musicians and MCs and small group leaders. We acknowledge that people have giftings, but may every single person remind ourselves and others that it's always about Jesus who is the great host. This is important Because sometimes as human beings, our attention or our affection and dangerously our adoration can be around human figures who are imperfect. I have so many stories to share, but I'll just leave it at this. Jesus alone is the bread of life. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the great host. We worship Jesus and Jesus alone. Here's the second thing that we can learn from a big picture perspective, and it's this. We need everyone because Jesus wants everyone. We need everyone. Imagine, think about this analogy of a potluck or a party. We need everyone because Jesus wants everyone. Jesus actually teaches a parable in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14. And it's often referred to as the parable of the great feast. And in this parable of the great feast... The story, there's numerous facets to it, but it eventually goes, and Jesus says, I want everyone. 
especially those who are misfits and lonely, the hungry, the poor. He wants everyone, especially those who might be ignored or on the margins or insignificant or invisible. When the Bible says to love your neighbor, and we have story and parable and story and parable again and again where Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples and to his followers that when he says love your neighbors, he is specifically trying to be intentional about loving your neighbors that don't just look like you, feel like you, look like you, even worship like you. Now listen, in our culture of fear-mongering that's going on, as we're thinking about Islamophobia in our country and beyond, our Muslim friends are not brothers and sisters in faith, but they are our neighbors, and the Bible is clear to love your neighbors. This is really important for us as followers of Jesus. And when the Bible says to love your neighbors, it also means to love your neighbors as hard as it might be in the great progressive west coast of the United States, even to love your neighbors that don't vote like you. Now, I don't know why you're laughing in Seattle. This is hot stuff. It is so hard. Jesus wants everyone. And so as a church, that should form and transform our posture of what it means to be community. To acknowledge that Jesus is our great host, to contend for this truth, but to also contend that because of Jesus, Jesus wants everyone. We need people of every ethnicity, every tribe, every background, every gender, every people with questions and doubts. We need the global church. We need room for young and younger, old and older. We need to make sure that there's room and space for those who have questions about wheelchairs and access and the list goes on. In other words, may our analogy of the table always be ever-expanding because the heart of Jesus is deep and wide and vast and long and high. Jesus wants everyone because Jesus loves everyone. Here's the third thing. Not only do we need everyone, but we need everyone to bring the gift of themselves and their time, talents, and treasures. We don't just need seat warmers, bystanders, consumers, spectators. Imagine a party without people. My college roommate and I went to UC Davis many years ago. My college roommate and I. We were trying to make friends in the first month of our freshman year. We scrounged up our money, bought some chips and dips. He had a radio system or a stereo system called COS, which doesn't exist anymore. We made some signs. We asked our dorm mates to come. 
And unfortunately, even though we put Bob Marley on the CD player, no one came. Do you know how awkward it is to have two roommates just dancing by ourselves? <laughs> like, we could say we're a church, but if men, women, and children aren't coming to church, and people aren't sharing their gifts and their stories and their time and their talents, then I would suggest to you that something is unhealthy about that church. Do you know that we all have something to give? And I'm not talking about food here, right? I'm talking about our stories and talents and resources, our presence, and the list goes on. And this is where I think it might be helpful for us to use the analogy of a potluck with a church. So just show of hands here. How many of you have been to a potluck this past year? Raise your hand if you've been to a potluck. All right, it's good. How many of you have hosted a potluck? Raise your hand. Not that many in the top row. Very selfish people up on the top <laughs> row there. So as a pastor for many years, I, I hate to brag, but I'm going to. As a pastor for many years, I've been pastoring now for about 27 years, I've grown to become sort of an expert on potlucks. <laughs> and while there are many types of potluckers, for the sake of the sermon, I've compiled an unscientific biased research <laughs> to give you seven types of church potluckers. May you be convicted. <laughs> so I want to go through these seven, and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit might convict us. Here's number one. Church potlucker number one is the no-show. <laughs> it's the person that says, I think I might come, but I'm not sure. The non-committal person. The person who never responds to the Evite invitations. Does anyone use Evites anymore? I'm not sure. It's the person that first responds to the text, but as things get a little closer to the date, they ghost themselves. <laughs> I'm not sure. I might be busy. I'm not quite sure if I have time or not. I might be memorizing the book of Leviticus. No, you're not. <laughs> as simple as this might be, one of the most significant things that we can do in a community is the gift of presence. The gift of showing up. The gift of saying, I'm here. Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 says, serve one another in love. You cannot serve one another in love if you don't show up. So friends, that's church potlucker number one. It's the no-show. Here's number two. Church potlucker number two is the person who brings nothing. <laughs> now, Listen, I'm not trying to be judgmental. Once is okay. Twice is okay. Three times is okay. But after 20 times, bro, bruh, if I can make the transition, do you know that every single one of us, we have something to bring into a community 
We all have something to be. In fact, I really believe that one of the most toxic, dangerous lies is when we tell one another, maybe our peers, our siblings, our coworkers, our parents, our children, when the lie that sounds like this, you are worth nothing. You have nothing to give. And it's sad because maybe some of you have experienced the trauma of those sinful words and it's possible that maybe in your anger or frustration, you may have said those words to others. You're useless, you're worthless, you're good for nothing. Those are lies that are contrary, antithetical to the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. Every single one of us, we have something to give. Here's potlucker number three. It's the person who brings food for one. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm speaking at you. Seriously, one chicken wing, <laughs> one can of soda, one serving of salad, true story, and one potluck, this one younger bro friend of mine brought one piece of Hawaiian bread. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, hey man, I know for a fact that the smallest Hawaiian bread package has six pieces of bread. <laughs> what happened? His answer, Pastor Gene, I was hungry as I was driving here. Dude. The reason why I share this is because do you know that one of an embodiment of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives is that we grow in generosity. We grow in generosity. Generosity with words, generosity with our actions. In our Western culture, anytime a Christian leader says the word generosity, your mind automatically tends to be defensive and then say, uh-oh, we're about to talk about money. And here's the thing. There is a danger when we somehow make the totality of generosity all about money. It's not just about money. It's one aspect of stewardship. Generosity involves time, your prayers, your encouragement. It involves you asking about people's stories, you sharing your stories, and the list goes on and on. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 says, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Friends, listen. Be generous. Begin to cultivate a lifestyle where you're not just thinking about me, myself, and I, or my friends, my clique, my small group, but think bigger because God's generosity is able to transform. Here's potlucker number four. It's the person who complains about everything. The person who complains about this sermon, 
about this list, complains about the time, about the food, about the guests, about the host, about the music, about the person who brings food for one. <laughs> now again, I, I want to have some real talk here. When I bring this up, I'm not suggesting that a person shouldn't articulate and voice concerns. That's not what I'm saying. When a church leader says, you know what? I'm the leader and I demand submission. You have to ask the question, are you asking for blind submission or discerning submission? And they're two radically different things. Anytime any person says, I want blind submission, you run away. Because that's dangerous. It's not biblical. It's not faithful. But when we're asking in a community, we're in the priesthood of believers. We can acknowledge that God raises up leaders within the church, women and men, young and younger, of all backgrounds and ages. And when we say, hey, we want you to work with us, use discernment, use the Holy Spirit, partner with us for the glory of God, that's a beautiful biblical portrait of discerning submission. But I think sometimes in our culture, of all people, all backgrounds, all ages, sometimes I wonder if we run on the currency of fear and anger and outrage. I wonder if that's the currency. I wonder if we're sometimes intentionally looking for reasons to be upset or to disagree. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Be discerning. We don't have to complain and argue and fight about everything. Here's church potlucker number five. It's the person who eats everything. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about the person who takes a taste of every single dish, because that's what I do. I'm talking about the person who treats the potluck like some sort of a buffet before the second coming of Christ. <laughs> like, after a while, you know that as you go to that potluck, you tell your family, your wife and kids, you're like strategizing, okay, honey, you talk with him and ask him about his faith story, and then we'll go and get the food, distract him, because we have to get our food. I love the wisdom that Paul says to the church in Philippi. Chapter 2, verse 3, 4, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, there are many things about Asian culture, Korean culture, that I would love to see God transform within our culture. And then there are some aspects about our culture that I just love and honor, and I wish that particularly in the West, more people would learn and adopt. And one of the things that I love is I love this posture that when someone comes to our house, we give you the seat of honor. We give you our 
best food. When some of my male friends come and visit me at our home when I was living in the dorms, I give them the bed because that's the posture of our culture. We honor you. We want to think outward as well. So imagine a church whose only focus is upon themselves. Don't just be generous, but be someone that chooses to bless and edify and encourage other people. When you come to church today, sometimes our question is that we're coming to church basically thinking what's in it for me, myself, and I. What if our posture changed as you're driving to church, your prayer is God, Holy Spirit, would you give me insight on just a handful of people that you would love for me to bless and encourage and pray for? God, of course, I want to be blessed. I want to be encouraged by your word and by worship and all of these things. But God, would you give me conviction to give eyes and ears and a heart that's sensitive to others? Can you imagine the revolution that would take place in churches across the world if our posture was not simply to come, consume, and digest, but to ask God, how will you bless me to bless others? And as we bless one another, we go into the world to bless our city, our neighborhood, and beyond. It's a posture. Here's church potlucker number six. It's the person who won't try anything new. Now, this upsets me because seriously, the purpose of a potluck is communal. Occasionally, it's rare, but I'll meet someone that will only try the very food that they brought. (laughs) Or they'll try maybe one particular dish. Friends, do you know that we need the beautiful diversity of the table? The table should not just be surrounded by people that look like you and feed off the same kind of food. We need a beautiful diversity, including our culture and languages and stories and music and, oh, the food. No offense to casserole, to the beloved casserole, but can you imagine a church potluck at reality where there's just 20 dishes of casserole. I mean, have you ever tried the glorious taste of southern chicken grits and barbecue or cornbread? Have you tried baguette and cheese from France? How about the glory of Swedish meatballs, not the ones from Ikea, like authentic (laughs) Swedish meatballs? Lasagna from Italy. How about masala or spicy curry from India? Patai. <laughs> Patai from Thailand. If you've ever tried dim sum from Hong Kong or, or Xiaolongbao dumplings from China. If you've ever tried sushi from Japan or kebabs from Turkey or authentic tacos and enchiladas from Mexico. And of course, Korean barbecue. My point is this, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the scriptures, the word of God gives us, oh, such a compelling, mesmerizing imagination, truth 
of what our eternity looks like. It says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And friends, my point is this, if our eternity is this truth given to us by the Word of God, if that is our tomorrow and our eternity, then why can't we pursue this here and now in your church, in this city, and in our world? May this not be a tertiary thing, a secondary thing, a peripheral thing, but may it be a core part of our discipleship. The seventh church potlucker simply says, it's the person that says, I'm here. I'm present. I acknowledge my brokenness. I acknowledge the brokenness of others. I acknowledge the brokenness and imperfections of our leaders and pastors. I acknowledge the imperfections of our church. But thanks be to God that his grace is sufficient for us. And this grace is paramount, the crux, the foundation. And we begin to realize that Jesus is our great host. And this person shows up and says, I'm here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. I'm so grateful. I want something to contribute. Let me try what you brought. Let me introduce myself. Here's my story. What's your story? How can I help? Let's work on this together. And the list goes on. How can we be on mission together for the glory of God? So how is it that the Holy Spirit might be convicting you? In my last few minutes, I just want to transition to point number four on these larger themes. The fourth one I think is very important. I want you to know that there's a major difference between the guest and host mentality. The challenge of the modern Western church, in my opinion, is that we have too many Christians acting like guests when we're called to be hosts. We want guest privileges, guest access, guest parking, guest whatever when we're called to be host. Now, no matter how many months or years you've been at this church, no matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, if you say, this is my church, you're no longer a guest. You're a host. And there's a particular posture and mentality that we have. Why is this important? Friends, we live in a very consumer, individualistic, centric society where the question that we ask is, what's in it for me? Now, I get it. I'm a consumer. We're all consumers. I acknowledge that church needs to resonate with you. It needs to speak to you. But I want to remind you, it's not all about you. You're not going to find a perfect church. I'm sorry. Why? Because the church is comprised of imperfect people. Do you know that the best thing about church, in my opinion, is people? The most challenging thing about church is people. Sometimes it's the same people. So as a result, if you're more influenced by this consumer, me, myself, and I, I'm just going to say it, and I hope that someday 
Pastor Dave will invite me back. But if we're not careful, what ends up happening is that this particular person, and I've been there, we come late, we leave early, we get what we want, we sing a few songs, I never want to be asked out of my comfort zone. I listen to the sermon. It better be good. It better not go over 40 minutes. You're Googling the 49er score right now. You say hi to a handful of close friends, and then you leave. And then you repeat week after week after week. That's a consumer-centric church. In the corporate world, they talk about this 80-20 principle, about 20% doing 80% of the work. Do you know that in Western churches, sociologists believe that it's actually about 90-10, 92-8, where about 8 to 10% of the church does the majority of the work. And here's the thing. Number one, it's not sustainable. It's not biblical, it's not faithful, and here's the last reason. The reason why you need to join in the community remix is because it's about your discipleship. We want you to grow. We need you to grow. We need you to grow deep in your faithfulness and obedience so that we can be on mission together for the glory of God. Let me close here. It's the posture. He saved me so I live with deep gratitude. Jesus washed my feet so I want to wash the feet of others. Jesus served me so I want to serve and bless others. Jesus fed me so I want to feed others. Jesus gave me water so I literally want to give others water. Jesus forgave me so I choose to forgive others. Jesus loved me so I want to love others. Jesus made room at the table for me and thus I want to make room at the table for others. Can you imagine? God has clearly done beautiful things at your church. But here's the challenge. The larger it becomes, the more challenging that it becomes for people to become anonymous, quiet, silent, consumers, and then we go. And then we come back. And then we go. So I pray that the Holy Spirit might invigorate, re-energize each and every single one of you. Let me close with this. We need you. We need you. Every sister, we need you. Every brother here, we need you. Every person of every age, every background, we need you. So, Father, thank you again so much for the gift that it is to study your word. God, we pray that you would encourage us through your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that as you continue to do your work at reality, would you help us, remind us that you and you alone are the great host. Help us to focus and fix our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of everything. Thank you that you welcome us to this table And thank you that you invite us to invite others to your great feast. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.